The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we talk with Brad Johnson, the former CFO of REI and former director of the National Forest Foundation. We talk about his time with both organizations, his time as an Aggie undergrad, and his current role teaching at USU. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase Anderson, and today um, I'm excited about this conversation. I'm joined by Brad Johnson, a Cache Valley local, um, adjunct professor here in the Huntsman School of Business and former CFO of REI and director and treasurer of the National Forest Foundation. Um, as well as, you know, you spent some time with, with Land's End that I, I failed to, to realize you spent time there as, as well. So a long history in the, out, the outdoor industry. Thanks for coming back oh, and my pleasure. to campus and joining the program. Thanks for the invitation to be here. Of course. Um, so I didn't realize that you were from here. Um, it, do you mind sharing a little bit about yeah. your, your background? And you're, you're from, from Logan, from Cache Valley. Born and raised here in Cache Valley. In fact, almost on the USU campus. I was born and raised on 10th North and 8th East, uh, where Pine View Apartments is, and lived there for the first 17 years of my life. So that is kitty corner to the football stadium. I, I, lived, is, I lived in Pine View while I was oh, going to school okay. here. Okay, so. we have a, yeah. <laughs> have a common past then. Yeah, so we, uh, uh, that was 1973, uh, we moved to Providence, but I was a senior in high school, so that was, I was really right here at USU. So mm. Providence went to I went to Logan the time. High. You went to Logan High I, at I time. stayed for my senior year okay. at Logan yeah. High, a wow. true grizzly here. So how did your, I mean, Logan at that time, was, was there the outdoor, I mean, this love of the outdoors here? I, I think Logan now, there's especially, it. Utah State just attracts a kind of person that loves mm-hmm. the outdoors. Mm-hmm. How was it growing up with Logan Canyon as that backdrop? Oh, that was that was my introduction to the outdoors and living that close to the canyon and the trails. The it, I love love Logan Canyon from the time I was a child. My mother, my dad, not so much. My dad was a dentist and he had a very busy practice, but my mother always loved the outdoors. Looked for opportunities to take us to. Uh, to Logan Canyon, and uh, so I have I have a ton of memories there. Those continue. About ten years ago, one of my brothers and I bought and built a cabin in Logan Canyon. So that's my place to go to uh, get away. What What were some of those favorite activities? Was it just going mostly up, hiking? hiking? Yeah, mostly hiking. Being uh, Tony Grove, the Wind Caves, uh, Crimson Trail. Uh, those places are they're like magic to me and I wanted my children and grandchildren to have the some of those same memories right so did you ever think that at that time maybe once you were starting think about colleges and and careers did you ever consider 
a career in the outdoor industry? Was that something that was even on your radar at that time? Or you... Yeah, I don't know that I, I would say that I did. And my interest in the outdoors only become, became greater as time went on. And it became my true passion and my wife's as well. And many of my eight children, in fact, most of my eight children, loved the outdoors because they were introduced at a very young age to uh, to the outdoors. So uh, a, a career in the outdoors worked perfectly for me. That's great. How, so before we jump into the career, you also went to school here at Utah State. I did. And sharing a little yeah. bit about you know what what you studied and and at that time did you start to to recognize maybe there's a pathway for you to work work for one of these outdoor brands or a few of them yeah so i went to school and graduated with my undergrad uh from utah state in 1979 uh, and uh, i studied business maybe an emphasis on finance and then got an mba at the university of utah with uh, again an emphasis uh, in finance so I, I can't say that I knew I'd always end up in the outdoor industry, but as time went on, this, I could see that that would be a perfect match, and indeed it was. So maybe you'd walk us through kind of that journey where you finally ended up at, at Land's End. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your pathway into the outdoor industry? How did you break in? Yeah, so I, when I left the University of Utah in 1981, I went to work for General Mills. At the time, General Mills had a division of retail companies that included Eddie Bauer, Talbots, and some others that are no longer around. I went to work for them and spent six years uh, with General Mills and then went uh, into a, uh, a startup that was uh, backed by some venture capital companies that I was with for two years, and that was an intense two years. I have such admiration for anybody who does a startup and the entrepreneurs in this world, uh, they do great things. Then I left, went back to Minneapolis, spent seven years working for a company called Wilson's Leather, left them and went to Land's End as the chief administrative officer and CFO for them. That would have been 1996. Spent three years with Land's End, had one short stop for a year in Portland, Maine, and then went to REI and spent eight years uh, where I was the CAO and CFO. Do you mind well. sharing a little bit about your time with, with Land's End and, and maybe kind of a, a glimpse at the outdoor industry during that yeah. time? That was yeah. 90s? Uh, 96 to 99. Okay, what, yeah. what was the outdoor industry like at that time? What was, what was you know, Land's End, um, kind of what was the state of the industry from Land's your perspective? Land's End was a huge player back yeah. then. In fact, there were two very big players, L.L. Bean, Land's End. Mm -hmm. REI was half the size, less than half the size of Land's End at that point. Eddie Bauer, people today don't think of Eddie Bauer as an outdoor company. They were very much an outdoor company during their, the 80s and 90s, uh, and then they became an apparel company like The Gap, Uh, but they kind of walked away from their outdoor roots for a while, but Land's End was a big player a very big player in it. And that was, boy, that was a great marriage for me because that's my passion, as I mentioned, is the outdoors. So what was your day-to-day like, um, kind of in the CFO role at a company like Land's End? What what does a day-to-day look like in that type of role? Well, the the standard definition for uh, the job description of a CFO 
is to safeguard the assets of the company, and that certainly is an important part of it. But in a company, the companies where I was the CFO, companies like REI and Land's End, and there were some real similarities between those two. Both of them were part of the 100 best companies to work for all the time that they were, uh, that, that I had worked for them. Now, REI, or Land's End was later sold to Sears, and they were no longer on that. REI is one of only five companies that's been on the 100 best companies to work for list since it's been started. And so my point is both companies were very committed to employees and making sure they had the right environment. I loved my role as the CFO and also the CAO because it was not a, 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 the same thing every day. I had all kinds of variety and most of it was interacting with people. Neither one of those companies are, have a dictatorial management style. It's a collaborative kind of decision making company. And when I say that, that's what they were then. I'm assuming that some of that continues. And I was able to work with some of the brightest, best people uh, we had, uh, they had the right values. What made it so exciting for me was the product, the outdoor product, but you had also the values that were so consistent with what I felt was important with me. Things like integrity, uh, things like balance. It was, they were companies that were different from what you typically would find. So you spent some time outside of the outdoor industry as well. Did, did you see a stark contrast in in those values? Did were you yeah. ever a part of companies where, as you know, working in in finance, you felt like, you know, I I can't get behind this. I don't yeah. believe in this. But yeah. in the outdoor industry, there's there's such a focus on values. Yeah, I I worked for some great companies. General Mills is General Mills is a terrific company, but let me t- let me give you one contrast that that kind of sealed the the deal for me was uh, some of the companies I worked for uh, you would go golfing if you had a recreational event you'd go golfing you with uh, the auditors or something like that that's what they would want you to do is go golfing it's a great sport but when I went to REI it was we'd go for a hike that was I knew I'd come to the right place it was just a different different values a different emphasis this uh, we would go and do service projects we'd go do trails in the Seattle area that was we'd take all of our new employees and we do once a month we'd take all the new employees and senior executives would go out and help do trails that was that was meaningful for me. That meant a lot more to me than when, say, one of the companies I worked for with General Mills with Talbots was Talbots. This is a women's apparel. I, they had great product. It was hard for me to be passionate about My wife loved it, but it was not like at REI or even Land's End. Can you speak a little bit to, I mean, you got to, to see everything, all, you know, all the books at, at these types of companies. Um, what's the type of financial commitment that you feel like outdoor companies make to to take care of their employees it seems like mm-hmm. outdoor companies more than than most companies i think are ahead of that curve where mm-hmm. they really they, they really care about the quality of life of their employees and you know patagonia certainly is one of the leaders rei patagonia i think about providing on chi- on-site child care services right yeah. or you know all the all the work that they do f- for conservation and you know the list goes on there's a financial cost mm-hmm. to a lot of that. Yeah. Um, 
can you share some thoughts on that? You know, maybe from your time with REI or, um, you know, what, what was that like for you uh, as the guardian of those assets? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, how did how did you justify, you know, spending dollars that maybe other companies wouldn't be willing to justify, um, you know, taking care of their own people? I had a great role as the CAO slash CFO because I also had responsibility for human resources. Mm. So uh, making sure that we continued to be one of the best places to work in the country and that we treated our employees right was uh, part and parcel of my responsibilities in HR and as the CFO. I used to always say that our greatest asset couldn't be found on the balance sheet. Our greatest asset was our employees. That's the most valuable thing we had as a company. That was what differentiated us more than anything else were these employees who were passionate about the outdoors, who knew our product, and were they were so excited to be part of the REI co-op. That was our greatest asset, and we needed to make sure we treated them well and came up with reasons for them to continue to be passionate about the co-op and the outdoors. And for the most part, I think we did a great job, and they continue to do that at RAI. What do you think some of those, what were some of those things that, that the company implemented to, to, you know, show, you know, those employees that they were valued and, and, and those things that, that were done to take care of them that, that you feel like kept people mm-hmm. coming back? Yeah, we did. We did some profit sharing that was extraordinary. We tried to do on health care, on some, any of the expenses that went to the employees. Our base salary, we just couldn't be competitive with a lot of other industries. Within the industry, we felt we were always competitive on the other benefits that we could throw out there, that we could give them some of the product benefits, some of the the gifts that we would would give to all employees. I think they were extraordinary and helped make us different. Uh, Part of it, REI is the largest consumer co-op in in the country. And that, the fact that it was a consumer co-op gave us some flexibility that other companies don't have. Uh, I used to describe my job as CFO of REI as the best CFO job in the, in the world because we had a balance sheet that had no debt. We had lots of cash. Today they have 500 or $600 million in cash. We, did, we didn't have that. We had 150, maybe $200 million in cash, no debt. And we didn't have to answer to Wall Street or to investors, private equity investors, who might want a short-term return. We could look long-term, and that enabled us to do some things in every aspect of our business, but especially with employees, that we could maybe offer some extraordinary things to employees that others couldn't. We're, I think at this point in time, it, it seems like more and more you're seeing kind of that corporatization of the outdoor industry. While you were there, I imagine a lot more of these brands were independent, mm-hmm. right? REI yeah. remains independent, yeah. Patagonia independent. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and looking at the outdoor industry right now, you see, and not, you know, this isn't, try, not trying to be critical or anything, but you see companies like VF Corporation, mm-hmm. right? This consolidation of mm-hmm. outdoor brands under VF Corporation or 
What are your thoughts on that? It's you know? a little disconcerting. Uh, now I'm just I'm an outsider. Now I, I'm giving you no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving you a perspective as a consumer here, and not not someone who's part an inside part of the industry. It concerns me a little because I know what those small independent brands did for the industry and for REI. I love the story of Keen. And Keen was nothing. REI went in at an OR show, I think it was, and one of our buyers said, I love that. I love those shoes. Let's do it. And it just took off. And this industry is built on all of those. I used to love to go to the OR shows and the hundreds and hundreds of small people that were just passionate about the industry. I hope we don't get away from that. I hope that the bigger guys and the roll-up, the consolidation, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, kill some of the innovation uh, that those little tiny businesses uh, can can bring to the industry. So that would be my personal perspective. Right. Um, kind of going back to maybe the organization of REI and the u- uniqueness of that. How unique was it to have a CFO, CFO, CAO? joint role, someone who is there kind of to advocate for the people and the person who's managing the assets mm-hmm. and the and the finances. It seems like in some company, in most companies, those are split. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, um, it would be. And in a way, you know, the finances are separate from the people. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. could see that, you know, those two roles coming into conflict. What Was that unique to have that kind of rolled up under one person and did that I thought help? it was great. Yeah. I, I thought it was wonderful because, and it certainly worked for me, I was not your typical uh, CFO that was all about every single penny. It was more, let's look long-term, let's make sure we are building on the values that have made REI such a unique and wonderful company. And the people, the people were... Uh, were always central. Lloyd Anderson founded REI along with his wife, Mary, in 1938. There was a quote that I used to use almost daily that Lloyd said. He said, REI is in the business of people. He didn't say we're in the outdoor industry, we're not in, we're, we're in the climbing business or the skiing business. He didn't say that. He said, REI is in the business of people. And I love that quote because that's how we tried to run that company. Well, we've talked with, with previous guests about as soon as uh, we had the founder of Jaybird, mm-hmm. the headphone mm-hmm. company who actually lives here in town now, um, he, he talked about, well, we didn't want to be a headphone company because as soon as you're a headphone company, something's going to come and disrupt headphones, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you're in the business of people, like... What do you do to dis- yeah. disrupt people, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there's always ways to adapt and grow the business to, to you know, be there for people. I don't know if yeah. you yeah. – are there any examples that you see of REI being able to do that over yeah. the years? Well, here, here's one thing that, uh, that truly made you, REI unique and I think still does is we had so many people that wanted to work for the company because of our benefits, because they knew we treated them, because we were treated them well, and they knew that they, they wanted to be in the outdoor industry. So of our ten to 10,000 employees when I was there, we had an inordinate number of those employees who worked at REI, who were attorneys, who were professors, who had these 
these educational levels that would you wouldn't think they'd be wearing a green vest in the store they did it because they loved the industry and let's be candid because they wanted that those pro deals they wanted the discount on the product that they were going to use and so we had these people that made you walked into the rei store you had expertise that and we trained them, but you couldn't train that. These people had spent their lives passionately pursuing the outdoors. That was the secret to, to REI's success. It, it all goes back to people and providing the environment to keep getting those people. When we, I don't know if it's still the case, but when we needed to fill a job, all you need to do is post something on the internet. We didn't have to do a, a lot of, so many people wanted to work there because of our reputation. And, who the company was. And we weren't perfect. Please don't interpret that this was a perfect company. I realize we had flaws, but for the most part, we did great work. That's great. Speaking of great work, um, REI continues that tradition of, of doing mm-hmm. doing good for the community and for the world. Um, while you were there, the closing on Black Fridays is a relatively mm-hmm. new, new thing that REI has been doing. Um, just in the last few years, I think it's I think five, it was 2014 yeah. they did it. Um, from your perspective, I feel like as the CFO, you might be feeling a little hesitant to, to close on one of the biggest day, the biggest day of the year, right? Um, what what do you think? What goes through your mind when you think about you know the step that REI is taking to to do that? To close I'll give on you my day? reaction yeah. when I heard about it in 2014. I said, why didn't we think of that? Why didn't we do that? It's it's brilliant. I think it's just so consistent with REI and its values. Now, it is, that's a big day, but let me give you just one more little insight. I'll tell you when I was there, and it may have changed, but uh, when I was there, Black Friday was an important day, but it wasn't like for so many retailers where it was the biggest or one of the two or three biggest days. It wasn't for REI. It wasn't Mm. that big of a day. It was, I shouldn't say that. It was a big day, but it wasn't, you wouldn't say that was one of, I don't even think it was one of our top five or maybe even, yeah, it it just, we didn't promote it that heavily. Nevertheless, that was a bold move, but so consistent with REI. And I look at the goodwill it created, the uh, PR they got out of that, genius absolutely genius and i uh for the employees think what it does for the employees i again i wish we would have thought of that yeah what is there anything else that you see that rei has been doing especially recently um that you know maybe some of the same same thoughts you wish you would have done that while you were there what what else is rei doing that you're especially impressed with I, i love the way they continue to give back to the communities that is and they are doing it at a level that we we never could they're so much bigger now and they've got access to uh to more cash than we had but they continue to give back and and build the communities the outdoor industry they are i think so many people look at rei as the 800 pound gorilla they are this 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 there's nobody close in the industry uh, on uh, in so many ways but they do it well they don't use that in a way to dominate and to 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 just call uh, make everything go rei's way they are great uh promoters of the industry and i i admire the company 
we had, love what they do. We we had Colin Quinn on, who's a product developer there. Mm-hmm. I know that you listened to that interview. Um, we we talked about one of those examples of of REI making a stand for the benefit of the rest of the industry and and driving the industry forward, which is more from a product perspective, but um, you know, putting together those REI standards mm-hmm. um, that include you know restricted substances, yep. uh, you know m- materials and um, you know, fair trade, all of that. Um, that's a huge stand. Yeah. And it seems like more and more these independent companies are the ones that are making that stand. Mm-hmm. They use their dominance for good. Mm-hmm. They don't use it to, to control uh, things that they don't. You, 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 all, you can look at examples of companies that misuse their power and their dominance. I don't think REI, REI does that. Yeah, I agree. Um, Kind of, this, you know, I didn't prep you for this question, but what was it like? You you were the CFO, CAO at REI, early 2000s to 2000? 2000. From 2001 to 2009. Okay. What, you know, that transition into, you know, growing e-commerce business, mm-hmm. what was that like? Well, I think it was, it was a huge benefit for REI that we had this e-commerce, that the REI really had a uh, uh, big portion of their business was direct direct mail and then when the internet came along we were smart enough to say let's invest and let's invest heavily there and we had these multi-tiered options for for our uh, multi-channel options for our buyer or our our uh, consumers to buy at REI and that helped we found our best buyers our best members, you know, REI's got the co-op membership, so we had information that most companies didn't have on buyers. Our best buyers by far were multi-channel shoppers. Those were, those were the best. We knew that uh, if we could get them shopping both at the stores and by mail and by uh, the Internet, that's, that's how you get the big win. Mm, that's that's interesting. What what when did REI really start to take e-commerce seriously? It was during your time. I yeah, imagine. I I think even before they okay. had said in, in the late '90s they said this this is going to be big and they'd made some investments. We stepped it up and continued to invest heavily in e-commerce. I ask because I mean right around the dot com, mm-hmm. you know the bubble era, you know, 90, 99, 2000, um, and you come in in 2000, 2001, yeah. and then really ramp up yeah. uh, e-commerce. That's that's really bold, especially af- yeah. after the, bubble the burst. burst. Yeah. The bubble had burst, but we said this is where we We're going to stick stick it out, yeah. stick through. Um, your time at REI ended. Um, you know, what influenced that decision, and, and then where did that take you Afterwards, I know you, you went to the National Forest Foundation. but So I was 52 years old. I had spent my life, as a, my corporate life, as a CFO at senior-level positions. It, those are great jobs, but they're also demanding. And I wasn't able to do what a lot of the things that I wanted to do. And I, I was at that point in life where I said, freedom is more important than income. And so... Uh, I retired and spent some time on boards. I worked for the, I 
was on the board of the National Forest Foundation. Now, I had done that from 2003 and did that until 2013, was able to give back in a way that I couldn't as a CFO. You just can't. And as I mentioned, I have eight children. I had my grandchildren were coming. It was, it was a, a, a conscious decision to say that freedom is more important than income. And I don't regret that. There were things I missed, but I was, that trade-off was a good one for me. So when did you you step into that role as the director of the National Forest Foundation? I know that wasn't, you were still semi-retired at that time. Right. So I, I was still continued on that. I was the treasurer. And the National Forest Foundation is a wonderful nonprofit. The National Forest Service has 193 million acres of land. And the National Forest Foundation is a Congress-chartered nonprofit that is there to help with the Forest Service and help ensure that users are 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 contributing, uh, keeping, renewing, keeping those 193 million acres in the state that they should be. It was that that was a fun fun role and worked with some people on that board. Craig Barrett, who was the CEO and chairman of Intel, John Hendricks, who founded the Discovery Channel. That uh, he was he. Uh, these are just wonderful people who were committed to the outdoors and the national forest. How was that going from working for a company that that took conservation so seriously and and preserving our natural environment to working for a nonprofit? What was that transition like? And I, I imagine that was relatively seamless. You went from yeah. one one company that had great values to a nonprofit with with the you know, a mission that, that the yeah. industry really supports. So I was, I, I never worked for the National Forest Foundation full-time, but I was, I was given, and it was, you know, it was charitable. I was doing it, they weren't paying me anything. I wanted to do that. I was, that was something I was passionate about and loved. Uh, I enjoyed the people that I worked with there. It was, uh, that was a good match for me as well. How important are organizations like that, especially right now in light of, um, you know, current events, especially here in the state, some attacks on, on how public lands are managed, you know, whether federal or state, that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, how important are organizations like this in the fight for, you know, access to public lands and, and the natural environment around us? Absolutely critical. I, I look at those Forest Service employees. I have tremendous admiration, respect for them. They are thrown in the middle of every issue. They get it from the side, from the industry side, they get it from the environmentalists, and they're in the middle. They're just trying to, those people are trying to manage the, the forests that are this, this uh, invaluable resource. They get caught in the middle, and my heart goes out to them. And anything that we can do to help ensure that those those resources we have are around for our children for the generations to come uh, that's the right investment so at some point you you come back to your home uh yeah. what what drove that decision to come back to to cash valley and and now um you're back here on on usu campus did you ever think yeah. that would happen I dreamed that would happen. I always had this dream that I'd be able to teach uh, at, at a university, and particularly at USU. 
uh, and so now I teach uh, corporate finance in the business college. Uh, I like to say that that is one of the very few things in this world that I actually know something about. And I, it's, it's marvelous to be able to work with these great students and to be back part of USU. My wife and I, my wife's from Hiram, so another Cache Valley. I, we were gone for 30 plus years. We knew that we would always come back here. And we're at a stage in life where we could live any place we want in the world. We knew we wanted to come back to Cache Valley, and I was thrilled when we got here that Dean Anderson asked me if I'd uh, teach. Uh, so it's been a great marriage for that's, me. That's great. What, what is it about Cache Valley? Well, for us, there are some, maybe we have some of that homing instinct, so you got to factor that in. But, and there's a family thing. We have a lot of family here. We both come from big families. But maybe just as importantly to us is the access to the outdoors. I mentioned we have a, a cabin six miles up Logan Canyon. It's Logan Canyon is a paradise. It's an absolute paradise for us to hike, to cross-country ski, to, my, uh, to bike. I, I just, uh, this is... I can leave my door and be up the canyon on my bike in, in 15 minutes. I can just, it's, this is, uh, this is a Mecca. Plus, sunshine. Now, I lived in Seattle for 11 years, and I love Seattle. It's my favorite place that we lived in all the places, except sometimes I've missed the sunshine. And here you've got 250, 300 days of sunshine. That's, That's great. You know, I'm I'm always advocating for growing the outdoor industry here. I think we, we talked a little off air that I think there's huge potential here. Um, you know, obviously we don't want to get the secret to get out too far, um, and I I know a lot of people don't want that to happen. Too much growth, um, but I think there's an identity that that can develop mm -hmm. here around outdoor culture and um, and and I think this is could just be a great home for for anyone who wants to to participate in the outdoors. Um, for outdoor companies. There's some great outdoor brands here as well. What are your thoughts about Cache Valley becoming more of an outdoor hub of sorts? Oh, I think there's an opportunity. Uh, I, I agree with you. The immediate access, think about where we sit here on campus. You can walk and be in the canyon in 10 minutes from where we are. It is, there aren't many places in the country that have the access to tremendous outdoor opportunities and I think we ought to be building on that now the downside you point out is it can become you can get too many there I guess I have always felt that if we don't get people in the outdoors they won't value it mm -hmm. they won't value if we don't get people to the national parks to the forests they will not value it and we won't the generations to come won't have it and so while I sometimes am not excited when I see what I might consider too many people in the outdoors, I also appreciate that that's what we need. We need people out there because then they value it. They will ensure that it, it survives. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, this has been really fun for me, just to learn more about your background, um, hear your thoughts. It's always great to have an Aggie on the program, um, someone from Cache Valley. Um, it's amazing what you've been able to do in your career. Um, and I hope people who hear this, especially some of our Cache Valley people, can 
can recognize that. Um, so many people have come through, you know, born, raised here, come to USU, and then gone and done, done amazing things, and you certainly have done that. Um, so glad to have you back here in, oh, in the thank Valley. Thank you, Chase. And, and I often tell my students, you're getting a great education at USU, and never underestimate what you can do. I never, ever felt like I was at a disadvantage when I was competing with people from the Ivy Leagues, and I, my, my education at USU prepared me every bit as well as theirs did. That's great. If, if people want to stay in touch with you, or is, is there any way to do that? Oh, please reach out to me by email, brad.johnson at mailbag.com. Uh, be happy to talk to them. And then I know I, I found you on LinkedIn. Yeah, so. LinkedIn's there. Okay. You can get me there as well. Well, great. Again, thanks yeah. for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. thanks for listening to the Highlander Podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.